0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipa
0: with The Washington Post. Hi, this
2: is Amy Britton calling in The Post.
0: This is Peter Jamison from The Washington Post. This is Post Post. Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 20th. Today, why the federal government is taking action on hate crimes against Asian Americans and the people of color on the far right—
2: All of this hate hides in plain sight. It hides in plain sight. And too often, it is met with silence.
0: On Thursday, President Biden took a major step in addressing violence against Asians and Asian Americans. He signed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. It's a new law meant to combat the wave of racially motivated attacks.
2: My message to all of those of you who are hurting is we see you. And the Congress has said, We see you. And we are committed to stop the hatred and the bias.
0: Several members of Congress were standing next to the president as he signed the bill, including Grace Meng.
3: The word I think of most is relief, because for the last year and a half, you know, I really felt like no one was listening to the community.
0: Meng is a Democrat, a representative from Queens, New York, and she is Asian American. She was the person who introduced the bill in the House.
3: I felt like I was on a zillion Zooms and meetings and rallies, and I often wondered, is anyone hearing us, Uh, coupled with the fact that, you know, we kept begging the former president not to use those words, Kung flu and Chinese virus. And so after a year of really feeling like our former president wasn't paying any attention to our community's cries for help, it's really been such a sense of relief. We talked to
0: Congresswoman Meng over Zoom on Thursday morning before she headed to the White House. We wanted to understand more about this bill that she started writing last year.
3: In short, it provides uh, dedicated personnel at the Department of Justice so that someone there is keeping an eye on these cases. It gives guidance to local law enforcement entities. And the second thing they need guidance for is to make sure that they are finding ways, partnering with local law enforcement to make it easier for victims to report these incidents.
0: I'm wondering, like, what difference do you think that will make, especially for regular people who are walking around being concerned about an attack against them or their family members? Like, will this actually make a difference?
3: So this legislation, as glad as I am to see it pass, is not the only solution. It is one part of the solution. This legislation really just holds accountable local law enforcement in making sure that They're actually telling the federal government what's going on in their jurisdictions. Most law enforcement jurisdictions don't report any hate crimes to the federal government. Hmm. So that is as if most of these hate crimes are not even happening. We have no record of them. We often tell people to just report an incident when it happens to them. Sometimes that's more easily said than done. People might not feel comfortable walking into a police precinct, a new building for the first time. They might have language obstacles.
0: And and, and how does this bill change that? Like, what will people's experience be now because of this legislation?
3: So what that means is the federal government will, for example, give guidance to a local law enforcement entity and say, let's work together to set up ways to have victims be able to report something online instead of having to go in person. Mm -hmm. Let's set up ways together where victims can report an incident, even if they don't speak English. And so it's basically just making it easier for the victims. And so This goal of getting better
0: data on what is actually happening and making sure that these incidents are reported, do you think that that is going to make a difference when it comes to actual prosecution of the people who commit these crimes or of of actually like preventing them from happening in the future?
3: The bill doesn't directly address either prevention or prosecution. It's more about providing resources on the ground where it's Desperately needed. You know, working with both local community organizations on a public education campaign. What does a hate crime look like? When to, you know, a lot of these projects that so many of our community groups who are on the front lines have been involved in bystander, upstander training. It also calls for more counseling and education if and when someone is convicted of a hate crime. Um, The goal is education, prevention, transparency and accountability for victims to make sure that they have the resources that they need. Hmm.
0: So this bill did get bipartisan support in the House, but at the same time, there were more than 60 Republican, you know, Republican colleagues of yours who decided not to vote for it. What did you think about that?
3: I really don't understand their thinking. I'm not gonna try to pretend to understand what Josh Hawley in the Senate thought when he voted against it, when 94 of his colleagues supported it. Um, Most of the Republicans in the House did support the bill. And so I hope that it's not any sort of uh, an attempt to rewrite history. We need to acknowledge what happened in places like Atlanta and the increase of incidents that happened around the country. And this is a major way, a major step that we need to take to be able to do that. What do you mean by rewrite history?
0: Like, do you feel that some Republicans in the House don't think that these acts of violence are actual hate crimes or or racially motivated?
3: Some of the Republicans have said, like, Representative Chip Roy said on the floor that they're really, I'm paraphrasing, but there really is no need to have more data and that it's just a cause of division. And they sort of push back on the fact that hate incidents against Asian Americans increased in the last year and a half because of the former president. We also need to make sure that we are calling out the facts that the numbers did increase and have increased since the former president used very incendiary language, putting a target on the backs of Asian Americans.
0: And you said that you feel like this is only one step or one part of what the solutions are. What are the other things that you think have to be have to be done to fix this problem?
3: Sure. Well, let me be clear. I don't think my job is done at all. If you take a look at the issue of mental health, that's something that we need to address in general in this country, but especially in light of what's happening as well. Almost half of the perpetrators in New York City uh, had issues with mental health, and we can't ignore that. We're actually working on legislation federally to provide more opportunities for diverse curriculum to be taught in our schools. Our kids, and I'm focusing on K-12, through 12, haven't necessarily had a complete teaching of American history. Many people you saw in a recent poll, they can't even think of an Asian-American besides Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan that's a problem, whether it's media, whether it's our curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, in the year 2021, uh, if you can't think of anyone after Bruce Lee, who's an Asian American <laughs> in your universe, that means we need to do a better job on educating. Mm-hmm. Clearly, this is
0: something you care about from a policy perspective and advocating on behalf of your constituents. But I'm also wondering, like, how this affects you personally or thinking about the people in your life.
3: Well, it's been a really stressful year. I think, you know, for the last year or so, it's felt really frustrating because I've often felt like I was screaming into a black hole and no one really cared Um, what I was saying or what I was trying to uh, convey. But after these attacks on the elderly and after the attacks in Atlanta, people started paying attention more. And I felt sadness, but a real sense of relief also that people were finally paying attention. People, some people maybe for the very first time in their lives, even unintentionally, were realizing that, oh, Asian-Americans aren't invisible and oh, they aren't foreigners and outsiders. And hey, they're American, just like the rest of us. I think some people really thought that for the very first time in their lives. And we all know that this is a very important step, but it is only one piece of the puzzle uh, to address this problem. And it's going to be a long road ahead, and we're going to all have to work together.
0: Grace Meng is a Democratic congresswoman from Queens, New York. This story was produced by Rena Flores.
4: when I was researching this story, I came across a video of a visibly black man who was a neo Confederate holding a big Confederate flag. And the video zooms in on his arm where there's a tattoo that says Southern by the grace of God. Mm -hmm. And he was with all of these white Confederates. And I was like, This is a Dave Chappelle skit come to life. (laughs) Like, this is wild. I have never seen a scene like this, you know?
0: Hannah Alam covers extremism and domestic terrorism for The Post.
4: I've been following far-right extremist groups for many years now, um, at least since 2016. And that involves going to a lot of rallies, going to meetings, going to militia group trainings, things like that. And I would notice at these events that they were more diverse than one would expect. And there's actually a lot of diversity in those movements, both the far-right label itself, but even within the divisions in the far-right. So there's diversity within the militia movement, in white supremacist movements, in anti-government type movements. And in all of those instances, no matter what kind of, you know, group or ideology, there was always at least one or two people of color. And, And why was the diversity surprising to you? I think that there's a tendency to see the far right as this blob and people think of it as it's just white supremacists. It's all white supremacist. That is the root. That is the ideology. That is the practice. And that's just not true. I mean, some researchers explain it as same soil, different branches. Hmm. It's rooted in this white supremacist history and ideology. And that's how a lot of these groups got their start. That's the origin story for them. But Since then, they've evolved in so many different ways. And if you think of everything as white supremacist, then you're missing a lot of the diversity and nuance, even on the far right.
0: So what were you trying to understand in talking to some of these people who are people of color, who are a part of these ultra-right groups?
4: For the past year or so, Every time I write about the Proud Boys or Patriot Prayer, some of these militia groups, I would get questions from friends, from family members, from readers saying, whoa, wait a minute, this is a white supremacist group, so why is it led by an Afro-Latino? Why are there black and brown faces in these photos that you're posting? Why? Why are they there? That was the main question was why. And so my colleague, Razan Nakhlawi, and I set out to answer why. And the answer varies. I mean, for example, the Patriot Movement. I went to a militia rally in Hampton, Virginia. And like other militia rallies, there were a handful of people of color there as part of the far-right activist group that was there. At this particular rally, I met a Puerto Rican named Emmanuel.
2: It was 2 issues at first. And then after that, now it's the, I see that, our liberties are starting to become at stake little by little.
4: He is a, he says he's a former Marine. He is from New York, moved to Hampton as a child and has grown up in Virginia. And for him, the driving force was Second Amendment rights. And I think that was his sort of gateway. He'd had a family tragedy where members of his family in New York were killed he said, nothing like that will ever happen to me again. So he started buying guns and getting into gun culture. And that's actually a, a really common story that I hear, especially from people who have military background. They enjoy guns. It's a, it's a sport and it's a hobby.
0: Interesting. And they feel like the far right is like protecting their right to guns better than any other group.
4: Well, it's a window in. So they'll start on a on a Second Amendment forum. That's a regular, you know, sort of mainstream, relatively mainstream Second Amendment forum. But then there are grades. I mean, then then they might get deeper into it and then they might get into sort of the gun extremist world. And in those forums, you're being told constantly they're going to take your guns. They're going to take your guns. You won't be able to protect your family. Look at what Antifa is doing. Look at Black Lives Matter. Do you want those hooligans coming to your neighborhood and ransacking your shop? And so it just ratchets up the fear and tensions. And wow, Antifa's around the corner and I got to protect my family if that's your whole world, you know? And so I think that's the rabbit hole that is the gateway for a lot of people. And it certainly was for Emmanuel. Well, what specifically do you worry about? What,
2: that? what specifically? Well, taking our rights away, like the freedom of speech, um, even though it's corporations that are doing it. Um, and But they are funded by the government as well. So that being said, you know, the corporations do it at first and then the government starts to hammer down and then that goes to everybody's rights. So have you.
0: And what are some of the other gateways through which people of color can be radicalized in this way?
4: I think they're the same as for any American who could be radicalized. I mean, we're not talking about ordinary conservatives of color who voted for Trump, like Trump, like the conservative message, and think it speaks to them and their situation in life better than what the Democrats or or liberals are, are offering. That's not who we're talking about, right? We're talking about the people who were part of the MAGA movement, who then became radicalized you know, believe the stop the steal lies, the kinds of folks that would go to the Capitol, for example, on, on January 6th, who would be mobilized to action where it puts them, you know, maybe they're not a member of a far-right group, but they're there shoulder to shoulder with the Proud Boys, with the Oath Keepers and others. So even if that is not your driving force, this sort of racial animus or, you know, anti-government activism, they're in that same milieu. You It's all one big soup and you see them become radicalized. So, you know, that's one gateway. Another is the patriot movement where, you know, for people who believe the man has wronged them, they've been oppressed. They see the government as untrustworthy. The message of, oh, this out of control, tyrannical government can find uh, residents in, in some communities of color. So that's another, the hardest one to understand and where we didn't get any good answers are that far racist fringe yeah. of the far right, which is the neo-Nazi sort of white power movement. And even there you'd find people of color, usually not open. I mean, a lot of them are kind of hiding behind assumed identities or have been white passing or things like that. And that's just really harder to understand. And is sort of a an individual basis. I mean, whatever's going on with them, you know, in their life, there's all different sorts of questions about what they're what what would attract them to that. That was the mm-hmm. one that stumped researchers I, I talked to. Well
0: I feel like that gets to an idea that I'm very interested in, which is that in your conversations with these members of the far right who are also people of color, like do they believe that the racist elements of these groups are not there? Like that they're completely ignoring them? Or do they acknowledge that they're there but just say, well, this doesn't really apply to me or how do these people sort of think through the connection between the groups that they're in and white supremacist ideology? A lot of
4: acrobatics. <laughs> there. There's a lot of sort of mental gymnastics to get there to the justification. I guess the refrain that we've heard again and again is, I'm an American. I'm not a hyphenated American. You hear that a lot. You hear, um, we've had a Black president. I've never personally been held back. By, by race, I've never personally been discriminated against. So this whole stuff about, you know, systemic, institutionalized racism, mm, I don't buy it because this never happened to me. Hmm. And you would hear justifications from that. You would hear also the sort of the bootstraps talking points, but on steroids, you know, like all you have to do is work hard and pull yourself up and anyone can succeed in America. And I did, I joined the Marines and then I got out and then I built a business. And then, you know, they've had a success story. And so they can't see any type of, you know, hindrance for anyone else. And, you know, I think there's also, they're very attuned to the perception that they're being tokenized, that they're being used,
0: that... Um, you mean by the groups themselves, that the, that there is some kind of good PR for these groups if they have members who are not white?
4: Exactly. You know, there's that idea. And uh, to that, Emmanuel, for example, said, I'm not brainwashed. And mm. he went on to explain, you know, his his views for for why he joins, what he gets out of a militia, you know, camaraderie, ideological sort of kinship on the you know his fears of big government or threats to the second amendment things like that what would you say to people who are like what do you get out of a militia what is it what's what do you like about it
2: well it's it's just a a group of us that um basically we we follow the same principles follow the same thing and we help each other because one one person doesn't make a movement You know, one person, everybody ignores. But when you have thousands, wait a second. Mm -hmm. Now there's something. Mm -hmm. We got to listen to this Mm -hmm. this person.
0: Though I think it is worth asking, like, is there an incentive for these groups to have diversity within their membership?
4: Oh, absolutely. I think that it offers them an easy foil for people, you know, when they say, oh, the Proud Boys are white supremacists. Well, the first reply to that is, but they're headed by a Cuban-American. Patriot Prayer, you know, isn't that a neo-fascist racist group? Well, the head of it is Joey Gibson, who's Japanese-American. Hmm. And so, yes, it it's kind of offers them this get out of jail free card, you know, oh, we're not white supremacists, look, you know, look who we have here.
0: What what do you make of that impulse, like that need to sort of demonstrate diversity among these groups? Like, what do you think that says about them and, and where they fit into American identity right now?
4: You know, it's just forcing a new way to look at, to think about the appeal of the far right. You know, before you might think, oh, that's for someone like McVeigh, A white guy, you know, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, that was kind of the archetype for someone who would join an anti-government group and and agitate against the government. That's different now. And analysts that I've talked to about this who study domestic terrorism and studied these groups and their evolution say that what they're seeing is a change where it still envisions an America that is militaristic, that requires a lot of military, that's isolationist, that's anti-immigration. But it's no longer in the language of racial purity. Hmm. so that's that's the part that's different. And Christina Beltran, one of the professors I spoke with uh, for this piece, talks about that. She talks about a multicultural whiteness <laughs> or a multiracial whiteness. And what she's talking about there is not obviously it's it's not a racial identifier, but she's talking about power structures that have traditionally upheld whiteness, you know. We shouldn't be surprised at seeing non-white people
1: drawn into the logics of, of, of white supremacy um that political identities are not just racial identities right we often conflate the two and i think <laughs> it's important to recognize that there's history matters and history has shaped us but that there's also the capacity to get attracted to something like that because of um it's it's deep ties to american conceptions of freedom or american mm-hmm.
4: conceptions of um of power and that people of color who are entering those institutions and those movements They're both challenging, I think, that perspective in a lot of ways, but, you know, there's the argument that they're also upholding it and, and like you said, giving it cover by their very presence.
1: I mean, in America, even even white supremacy is multiracial. Like, that is how not Anglo-Saxon we are at this point. Like, we are a multiracial democracy. And when people like Marjorie Taylor Greene have to say things like, we accept people of any creed or color, like, the Marjorie Greens of 100 years ago would say, no, we don't want Catholics. No, we don't want Black people. So there's something interesting about the fact that even our right-wing, far-right authoritarian people who are articulating a really heinous politics of anti-Blackness and anti-migrant and you know, anti-Asian, but even they find themselves having to um, articulate, and they do articulate, a politics of, of diversity that they use diversity as a legitimating discourse themselves. The fact that they do that speaks to the fact that they have lost this war. They are too late to this party now.
0: But it's so interesting because it feels like the history of America is people falling into whiteness or fighting to be considered white or trying to align themselves with white people because of the political power that that affords. So in many ways, it makes a lot of sense that you would have people of color who see something powerful in these groups that they want to share in.
4: Oh, absolutely. And I think, I mean, that echoes some of what I've heard in reporting where, yes, nobody wants to be a victim, right? And so, right, that's, that's what you hear. I'm not a victim. I'm not oppressed. I made it in America. Why can't you? You know, and, and they'll acknowledge that Obviously, you know, there's this ugly history. There's the legacy of slavery. There's, you know, all these incidents in in our country's history. But it's about how far we've come, not how far we have to go.
0: Hannah Alam covers extremism and domestic terrorism for The Post. She reported this story with Razan Niklawi. The segment was produced by Sabi Robinson and Renny Svrnovsky. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernovski. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag #PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.